is Sit Rep on BFBS. Ukraine, the people who matter, have been talking in Geneva as Putin says Russian rights must be protected. Scotland, the Defence Secretary, says Faslane stays put. We're not going to give up uh, our nuclear weapons or our uh, submarine-based missile capability. And Afghanistan, withdrawal won't mean the questioning stops. Sadler. Russia, Ukraine, the USA and the European Union have been holding talks in Geneva this morning about the crisis in Ukraine. Well, Christopher Lee, BFBS defence analyst, is here as usual to discuss these issues with us. But first of all, joining us from our studio in Westminster is former British ambassador to the United States, Sir Christopher Mayer. Uh, Sir Christopher, talks are over. Nobody expected a breakthrough. But where do things go from here, do you think? Well, I don't know what the outcome of the talks uh, has been. I'm sure foreign ministers will start spreading out um, around the place, giving press conferences, giving their take on what was discussed and what may have been agreed. Nobody held, as you say, very high hopes of these talks, and I will be surprised if uh, they're able to move anything materially much further forward. I'm a pessimist on this, but uh, maybe um, I'll be proved wrong, and I hope I am. Do you think NATO is doing enough? Well, NATO hasn't got a role as far as uh, Ukraine is concerned. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Um, and uh, uh, as far as the NATO agreement is c- concerned, it doesn't have, a, as the Americans might put it, a dog in that fight. Um, I think where NATO comes into this is, uh, and this is where it gets dangerous, to be perfectly frank with you, um, that uh, we have a whole bunch of other Eastern European states who used to be in the old sphere of influence of the Soviet Union, where there are substantial Russian minorities, and of course when one says that, one looks at the Baltic states, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, and the real worry is that however things unwind in the Ukraine, um, and I think the situation there is less important for the West than many people suggest it is, what would be worrying would be if Putin saw this as a precedent for trying to do the same thing in the Baltic states as he has done in Crimea and may yet do in eastern Ukraine. And the reason I say that is because all three Baltic states are fully paid up members of NATO and also of the European Union. And uh, member states of NATO, as you know very well, have a treaty obligation to come to the support and rescue of a member state who might be attacked by a third party. So were Putin to do in the Baltic states what he's done in Crimea, we would be moving not simply into a new Cold War, we'd actually be getting uncomfortably close to a hot war because I think it would be in our right to say to Putin, what you're doing is an act of war. So that is where I think the real danger lies and whether they've tackled that today in the meeting, in, in the big international meeting, I have no idea. Christopher Lee, let me just bring you in there. Um, yeah, I, I, I was just wondering, um, Sir Christopher, I wonder if America would really think to itself, why, why not let the status quo um, be established here? We don't really want to go into a shooting war, and we're not going to go into a shooting war. We've got no chance of actually settling it a way that the Western European countries would be satisfied with, and probably not even Ukrainians. Why not just sort out Ukraine into a federal state? Ten years' time, everybody would have forgotten about the whole thing. 
but we would have a quietly governed Europe, far more chance of it. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all, and I think that actually is what is likely to happen, although the rhetorical noise coming out of Western leaders uh, might suggest something different. In the end, because we will not go to war with Russia over Ukraine, uh, we didn't do it over Crimea, we're not going to do it over eastern Ukraine, the, the, the uh, deterrents available to us to stop Putin going any further in Ukraine are negligible. And that's why I think one of the things that Western leaders ought to do is to ramp down their rhetoric a bit because they're talking extremely loudly and carrying very, very small sticks indeed. So I think what the scenario you describe is, is what is going to happen. Ukraine will sort itself out one way or another and the predominant external power there will be, as it has always been historically, Russia. And that will be the main determinant um, of what happens there. Uh, that is why I say... It's not Ukraine itself which would bother us so much, but the precedent that this may set for Putin's ambitions elsewhere in what used to be part of the old Soviet empire. And the three most vulnerable states in that uh, category are the three Baltic states. Okay, uh, so Christopher Mayer, thank you for that. Christopher Lee, let me come back to you. Putin is saying that he hasn't got troops in the Ukraine. How do we know that? It's, it's this is marvellous John le Carre stuff, really. It's, I'll tell you what happens. Um, we don't just sit here with, let's say, um, the, the secretaries of state, people like William Hague, saying, no, 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 they've got people in there, we've seen them, or whatever. What happens is this. GCHQ, along with the NSA, the Americans, along with, I have to say, the Israelis to get involved in this, they start listening. They start listening to mobile telephone conversations. They start listening to comms. They know exactly where the comms uh, setups are, going 1,100 miles back from the Ukraine, Crimea and border. They start listening to what everybody says. They start listening on certain uh, networks and frequencies they know exist between different types of, 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 of units. And a lot of them are different types of units. Then they do what we don't do, especially on radio. But they start looking very carefully at who is there. So you look, for example, um, at the the boots of the soldiers that are there. And you say, those boots are, in fact, uh, they come up almost to the thigh length. They've got their, their 12 lace boots. Um, they're, they're made by Bukats, the, uh, the Russian bootmakers, for, for, for the paratroopers. They are paratroopers then. You then start looking at things such as the uh, the T-shirts they're wearing underneath their uniforms and their stripes. And you think, well, you know, they're, they're the equivalent of our Marine Corps. Mm. Uh, there, um, you look at the, um, I suppose the helmets. What sort of helmets they're wearing, uh, and where an, a unit identification badge is, which is on the left sleeve, just about the elbow size. Um, you then start looking for that great sign, which which tells you they're Russian uh, soldiers, but you can't see immediately. But you, you you look for it. So in other words, you build up an intelligence picture. You then go along to the Gen Joint Intelligence Committee in Whitehall. And you say, right, when you see the Prime Minister, tell him this. We say, looking at everything, including everything from the boots up of the people there, they are or they are not the Russian troops or they are the local militia. And that's how they're identified. It's not just a question of, of, of political rhetoric. So it's likely that um, it is known who these troops are. Why, um, why isn't anybody saying they're definitely Russian troops or, or not? Um, well, I mean... Uh, President Putin this morning, for example, uh, has his annual press conference. 
And he said, well, we did have troops in, in the Crimea, and that was to help our guys out down there. Uh, we don't have troops in Ukraine um, at the moment, but we reserve the right to put them in. Now, when he says troops, uh, he doesn't mean, for example, the GRU, which is the, uh, the special intelligence troops of, of, of the Russian army. Um, the way I hear it, they've probably got what they would call small Paxos unit of intelligence directors. And they're the blokes that go to certain areas. They organise the local militia. And in fact, they might even front up with the local militia and then they just pull back and let the local militia get on there. I suppose in good old political terms you call them activists, but that's what they've actually got in, the intelligence people. And they need them because you need three sorts of intelligence. You need electronic intelligence, we were talking about. You need visual intelligence and you also need human, in, human intelligence. And that's, what, that's how we're getting the idea that these people are there. Um, and uh, so, Christopher Mayer, let's just come back to you uh, for, for one final question. Do you think that we're in this situation or, or now because Putin is taking advantage, he knows that the West is essentially war-weary? Is that why we're, we're at this point? Uh, not entirely. I think that Putin's whole mo mo motivation, and in some ways you need to look more closely at what he's been doing domestically in his various terms as president... Uh, and I think the, the, this springs fundamentally from a massive sense of grievance and humiliation, however well or ill-founded they may be, which springs from the time when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And uh, on my visits to Moscow, if I've heard it once, I've heard it 50 times from various Russians, they think that at that time the West took advantage of Russia's weakness above all to push membership of NATO and membership of the European Union eastwards, something that they thought they had been told, for example, at the time of German unification, would not happen. So there's a great sense of grievance and there's a great sense of betrayal and a great sense among many Russians of the need to get Russia's prestige and strength uh, back again. And I think Putin is one of the great spokesmen of that hyper-nationalist trend. You only have to remember the speech he made, I think it was on March the 18th after uh, the taking of Crimea, and we actually set out this philosophy, a combination of triumphalism, patriotism, and deep, deep grievance um, at what he considered to be the w wicked ways of the West. Now, if you put it in that context, uh, you can make an argument that he's going to try very hard to re-establish uh, the old Soviet Union, the old Soviet Empire. Um, he's been making moves in parts of Central Asia, which used to be part of the Soviet Union, to try and uh, um, uh, realize that ambition. But to do so in Eastern Europe, apart from what he's doing now in Ukraine, and I don't disagree with anything Christopher Lee says, although I would also say that I think that some of the Ukrainian army will be there as defectors to the, um, to the Russian cause. But to try and get, get that ambition uh, to restore the greatness of the, the old Soviet and even Tsarist empire. There are also a lot of Tsarist echoes in what. editor of Africa Confidential. Uh, Patrick, thanks for joining us. What, what's going on here? Who's taken them? Well, the main suspicion is at the Islamist militia, Boko Haram, 
uh, whose actual name, uh, Haram, uh, forbidden local Western education, uh, is to campaign against Western education. So they've, in the past, they've deliberately targeted schools, both boys' schools and girls' schools. They have abducted students in the past, and they have actually physically attacked schools, killing many of the pupils, usually the, the, the male pupils. So it's entirely consistent with the way they've been operating. Um, and it may be that for once the Nigerian military's got the upper hand against them uh, and uh, they've scattered. And uh, in, in, the, in the confusion, uh, the abducted, many of the abducted students have escaped. But it's still very unclear whether they're, uh, they're safely uh, away from their captors. So what exactly do Boko Haram want? What do they hope to get out of this? Well, it, it, it's been a three-year terror campaign. Uh, before, they were a political organization campaigning for Sharia law across the whole of Nigeria, turning Nigeria into a, an Islamic state. That was their core demand. Uh, they had a series of clashes with the army and police. Uh, and then stepped up the militancy, and now they're effectively using terror as kind of a, a weapon of propaganda and uh, to, to really uh, put, put the government on the back foot in every, every sense. So you've got a situation in the north where they, they say we'll attack construction companies who are trying to fix some of the infrastructure problems in the north. In other words, you've got this vicious cycle of poverty and... Uh, unemployment and desperation and insecurity and that they're essentially trying to get a, a, a major political crisis in the north uh, and and divide the Muslim population from the Christian population Nigeria is more or less equally split between Muslims and Christians uh, and and the the tragic thing is at the moment they're having a degree of success people are getting very very frustrated uh, and uh, reactions to them uh, are getting as virulent as the uh, as their attacks sometimes so obviously they are they are having an impact then by these these actions. Yeah. Uh, they cer- they certainly are. They're um, most uh, and in terms of grabbing the headlines, the attack on Abuja last week uh, when they um, attacked a, a bus station just outside of the capital, uh, seventy one people were killed. Then um, that sends a very clear message that that was less than ten minutes away from where the president lives. Uh, at the beginning of May, the World Economic Forum is meeting in Nigeria. And so it's, it was clearly an attempt by Boko Haram uh, to show that Nigeria was not a safe place to be and to, to frighten off investors. And that's another leg to their strategy, if you like. And what, what does it mean for British interests in Nigeria? Well, I think it, already uh, there's a, a fair degree of concern about security uh, of um, British expatriates there. And uh, I, I can only think this is just going to increase it. Um, it's not one of those countries where the, the Foreign Office says don't go. Uh, there's massive British investment in Nigeria, especially in the oil and gas industry, but increasingly in the electricity industry and uh, now manufacturing industry there. So I don't think that's going to change, but I think people are going to be a lot more careful. Uh, And it's going to, sadly, again, for the country, it's going to reinforce the isolation of the north, because very few companies want to go sort of north of the centre of the country, really, because that's what the epicentre of the... uh, the Islamist militia rebellion, and so they're not going to want to go anywhere near that. Um, so I think it's got, uh, 
British, uh, British companies and British diplomats are going to be a lot more cautious in the coming months. OK, Patrick Smith, thanks for your time today. The role of the House of Commons Defence Committee is to hold the MOD to account. It's made up of 12 MPs and since 2005 it's been chaired by James Arbuthnot. But he's stepping down in a couple of weeks. Kate Chabot has spoken to him and asked him if he thought it was a frustrating job pointing out that the MOD's inefficiencies and incompetence. Sometimes, yes, and sometimes it's uh, very difficult to get information out of the Ministry of Defence as well, which can be, while being a leaky organisation, can be uh, secretive and defensive, and we would like to see that change. But uh, overall, it's an extraordinarily good organisation with wonderful people working, uh, working to the very best of their high ability, and that's something that I've been involved with as the chairman of the committee for nine years now, and I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed that time, and I feel very lucky to have been able to do it. But have you, do you feel the kind of conclusions that you've made, that they've been taken, that notice has been taken of them, and that the MOD ha- has tried to implement changes, or do you feel sometimes you're just banging your head against a brick wall? Some and some. Um, the conclusions that we reached, for example, in relation to the education of service children, were very well received at the time. But then we had another report. That was in the last parliament. Then we had another report uh, in this parliament. We discovered that no action had been taken on trying to help children with special educational needs. And it was as though uh, the Department for Education and the Ministry of Defence were coming to this as though uh, nobody had ever said anything about it at all, which was frustrating. So, yes, I do have a feeling of Groundhog Day, so maybe it's a time for somebody else to take over. So what do you think is the best thing the MOD has achieved over the last nine years and and what's the worst? Well, at a time of enormous change, the Ministry of Defence has remained a highly respected organisation within this country and is also very highly respected uh, outside. And our armed forces, because of their training and their excellent equipment, Um, and because of the quality of the personnel, are really well regarded outside this country as well as inside. Uh, But there are some things that have been really uh, fiascos. The uh, report we did into the future rapid uh, effect system, the FRES, turned out to be a vehicle in the end, uh, showed one of the fiascos that some of the equipment procurement has been an absolute nightmare. Having said that, I think the Bernard Gray report uh, has changed things really for the better. And I'm personally extremely pleased that he's in charge now of making sure that our acquisition gets better than it has been in the past. With the combat mission ending in Afghanistan this year, there will be inquiries and reports into our time in Afghanistan, perhaps for years to come. How important do you think the lessons from Afghanistan are learned and that also interest is kept in that country post the combat withdrawal? That's an absolutely key question. The Ministry of Defence has been 
reluctant to commit itself to having a historical analysis of what has happened in Afghanistan. It's essential that it should, absolutely essential that it should, so that we learn from our mistakes. It's not clear that we learned from all of our mistakes in Iraq and so uh, until the Chilcot inquiry is published, which looks as though it's going to be months, if not years off, uh, it, it's very difficult to know what those lessons are. But it is really important that the Ministry of Defence should be less defensive and more open about learning lessons, not just within the Ministry of Defence, actually, but across government. Now that we've got a comprehensive approach to combat, which is an excellent thing, we need to learn these lessons across government, have a, have a unity of language that people under, so people understand what they mean by various different expressions. Your successor will face the 2015 Defence Review. What else is ahead for this person and what do you think they should make their priorities? Uh, it, it's, it, there have been a lot of challenges that we've had to face over the last nine years, but there are lots of challenges to come. Uh, we're seeing an emerging position in Ukraine. We don't know where that's going to end. We see a really serious uh, level of threats from uh, an asymmetric threats from things like cyber, electromagnetic pulse potential attacks. We don't know what the result is going to be in the Scottish referendum. We're going to see a financial shift to Asia away from the European Union. We're going to see an American shift to the Pacific away from the Atlantic and all sorts of different things like uh, the uh, impact of climate change on the world. So there are any number of really, really serious challenges to face. We still don't know the fallout from the Arab Spring, the result of the Syrian conflict. And uh, so there are so many things that are going to have to be dealt with in the future. And what piece of advice would you like to give that person? The most important piece of advice, I think, is to make sure you keep the committee united because the committee wishes to do the best by the country and by defence and not to be distracted by party political factions. And that has happened uh, during the last nine years. I think it happened under my predecessor. I'm sure it will happen under my successor, but that's the most important thing to maintain. That was James Arbuthnot, Chair of the House of Commons Defence Committee, talking to Kate Jabot. So, Christopher Lee, what do you make of the uh, Defence Committee's work under Arbuthnot? I, I think perhaps uh, James Arbuthnot has been the best, the most, the sometimes quite brilliant chairman of all the defence, all, all the committees in, in the House of Commons set up by the late Norman St. John Stevens, and he knew that. He's not a rabble-rouser. He's quiet, he's always credible, and he's done what he said right at the end there. He's managed to hold the committee together. He's also saying, basically, that in future, forget it's going to be easy times after Afghanistan. Uh, there's so much more to come, and the Defence Committee is going to be even harder at work than it has been during the past ten years of his uh, of his chairmanship. They need somebody rather mm. like him, an old hand that's been around the, the bazaars, uh, and is not looking for an edit, uh, for a great career in in in, in the ministry.
Have you got any names to put forward for this job? Listen, I, I won a lot of money on Bubba Watson. I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting back on that. <laughs> OK, well, let's uh, let's move on then to any other business. Um, first of all, let's touch on the Al Swede inquiry. That was the, the last day yesterday. It was. It's the um, And it's the allegations, really, that the, the British troops behaved badly in torture and uh, etc. In, in, in Iraq. 22, 23 million quid yep. spent on it so far. The lawyers have done well. Five million they've made out of it. I think the most dreadful allegation was, in fact, this week as it closed this session, that criminal conspiracy, because of the prospect of compensation, might be behind some of the accusations against British troops. That's the difficulty. But every war produces this sort of inquiry. Not many of them have actually, inquiries have actually uh, been as thorough as this one. And we're expecting the report by the end of the year from the chairman, fingers crossed. Indian elections. Yeah, very important. This is, uh, I mean, today is, the Indian elections have to be because of the size of India and the the voting system. Uh, It's spread over about five weeks and today is the most important uh, one uh, day of it all. Indian elections are important to us because it will determine the relationship between India and Pakistan, and that in turn will, will, will determine the relationship with Afghanistan. And whether Afghanistan is going to be a, a, a partial success will largely depend on what elections, uh, what, how people vote today is. It, it, that's, that's a marvellous illustration of how diplomacy works. And a new intelligence director in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, uh, Prince Bandar bin Sultan uh, has got the elbow... Uh, he'd been blamed for not actually knocking over uh, Assad in Syria thus far. I think they're going to bully general in there and therefore look for more, more equipment and money going into Syria for the rebels. OK, well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee and all our other guests. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Claire Sadler, thanks for listening and goodbye. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Only on PM. The dunce of Downing Street. The two Muppets who advised the last Chancellor. Is that kind of thing putting off female MPs? People with a lot to contribute, reluctant to engage in the chamber because they think that the histrionics are so damaging as to cause them to look elsewhere. Responding to PM's democracy series, the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, talks to us about political engagement, Maria Miller's expenses and Sexminster. Also in the programme, Ukraine, the Russians and Americans have been in talks, we'll tell you what they said. The boss of the co-op group talks to PM after making its biggest ever losses. Are any of its businesses sacrosanct? I don't think we can say that. We don't have a right to exist. Later, the town that's not sure where it is. We feel here we live in a no-man's land and how can we progress as an area if we don't know who we are? And as a special treat, if you're one of the millions of people on your Easter travels right now... debate whether it's wise to give the hard shoulder the cold shoulder. With the BBC News throughout the hour, Zeb Sones.
The Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, says several female MPs have told him they no longer attend Prime Minister's questions because they think it's so bad. In an interview for this programme, John Burko said it was worrying that members with a lot to contribute were being put off attending the weekly session because of what he called the histrionics and cacophony of noise. Our political correspondent, Chris Mason, has been speaking to him. In February, John Burko said in the Commons that too many outstanding women MPs were leaving Parliament. Now, he says, a number of seasoned parliamentarians who are not shrinking violets feel that Prime Minister's questions is so bad and so embarrassing they didn't go anymore. Mr Burko said the atmosphere contributed to what he saw as very widespread disengagement with politics and disapproval of politicians. He also urged political leaders to be careful about the promises they make. Let's promise a bit less and deliver a bit better, he suggested. The South Korean president has been confronted by angry parents demanding that more be done to help find their children who were on board the ferry which sank yesterday. The number of confirmed dead has risen to 20, with more than 270 still unaccounted for. One Coast Guard official said the chances of finding anyone else alive was close to zero. The authorities are investigating whether the captain abandoned the vessel early. The Russian President Vladimir Putin has said he hopes he won't have to send troops into eastern Ukraine, but he has the right to do so. He was speaking on a phone-in on Russian television. In Geneva, talks on the crisis are continuing hours longer than expected between the United States, Russia, the European Union and Ukraine. Our diplomatic correspondent, James Robbins, reports. President Putin accused Ukraine of committing a crime by using military force against civilians in the east of the country. He asserted what he called his right to send troops in to protect Russian-speaking communities. According to the authorities in Kiev, three pro-Russian protesters were killed last night in an attempted raid on a National Guard unit in the port city of Mariupol. Mr Putin denied that Russia's military was involved in eastern Ukraine, but admitted for the first time Russian forces had been in Crimea before its annexation. Ukraine's interim Prime Minister, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, has 